0: Good morning. You know, when you think about the word hypocrisy, it is a word that we may associate with an audacious action that is done by a self righteous person who condemns others for what he or she themselves do. I read the AP story and it was thick with irony. It uh, took place in Washington, Pennsylvania. It was about the arrest of two people who were a part of an organization locally known as the Stop the Violence group. They were under arrest, and the arrest warrant in part read that they had beat up a former roommate with whom they had had a property dispute. According to the further report, they had to continued to kick this former roommate as he lay unconscious on the sidewalk, uh, after the, doing so, causing severe injury. And the female defendant still had on the Stop the Violence t-shirt that she had been wearing the night before as she had led a march with regard to two recent local shootings. It's the environmentalist driving the gas-guzzling SUV. It's the televangelist who has exposed for the extramarital affair. It's the peaceful protester who's just beat somebody up. It's also the speeding parent who rebukes his teenager for doing the very same thing. You know, we know we have plenty of examples all around us of individuals who are trying to tell others how they ought to live, but they themselves make little or no effort To do the very thing they want others to do. This lesson and this series of lessons are not designed to encourage those who are not trying to fight the struggles that we face in our lives. Who we have in mind are those who are just like the Apostle Paul. And I hope if you have your Bibles open in Romans chapter 7 that you'll keep it there. Because we're going to look at that text of scripture that we see in Romans chapter 7 verse 15 through 25. As we examine someone like the Apostle Paul, so well known to us, and perhaps even we think of this text, but sometimes we don't think about this text as it relates to the Apostle Paul in his own personal life. You know, sometimes I believe that we're real real good in engaging in four-year talk. And it may be NPR talk. It's wherever we are after services. And it so often goes like this. Hi, how are you? Fine. How are you? Great. Have a good week. You too. And we leave and depart from one another. But inside we're screaming, I'm not fine. I'm struggling. My relationships are a wreck. My job is hanging by a thread. I'm worried about my finances and I'm worried about my health. I'm just about ready to give up. Or maybe it's more nebulous and it's more generic. And we would say something like, I just don't feel worthy. I don't feel like I'm living the way that I want to live. And maybe I'm just about ready to give up. I've received emails and have spoken on the phone with individuals who will say things like, the more I read God's Word, the more I'm concerned that I'm just not going to make it to heaven. I struggle to believe. No, I believe in God. But I have a hard time believing that I'm going to be able to successfully walk the Christian life. In the Bible, I believe in grace, but in reality, not so much. Hell, hell is real to me. But the more I read, the more I see and cannot believe that his yoke is easy. Perhaps there are more people like those email transcripts that I've just shared with you from my past, not from Lehman, than we would like to say. I remember Kathy sharing with me the words of a wonderful Christian woman. One, that if you saw her, you would think she's in the core, she's involved, she is active, and she finds herself in every way that one could be measured as a faithful Christian. You would say that this woman was that. But she said that, I didn't go to church for several months because I felt like that The sin that I struggled with was so great that I I just didn't feel like there was anything that I could do to counteract that. Do you find yourself struggling with being authentic, with being genuine? Do you ever find yourself in a place not unlike the Apostle Paul who very publicly reveals to us the inner wrestling match that's going on in his heart and in his life? who knows what's right and has every access that we do to God's Word to tell him what was right and yet despite that and despite the fact that God was using him and was helping him to walk through doors that few people have ever walked through despite all the faithfulness and all the activity that he did to try to grow the kingdom of God, despite all of that you have the Apostle Paul struggling to his innermost being. I don't know how Romans chapter 7 verse 15 through 25 hits you. It is not the words of somebody who's defeated. In fact, it's the words of somebody who's going to help us to appreciate how it is that we overcome. In our series of lessons that we conclude today, I struggle. Today I want to talk about a subject I believe that most, if not all of us, can appreciate and relate to. I struggle with hypocrisy. And I want us to look at this text and see some answers for how we can overcome that struggle. I want to look at four things from our text, and the lesson will be yours. How do you overcome your struggle with hypocrisy? Well, the very first thing that we've got to do before we delve any deeper into this is that we have got to call hypocrisy exactly what it is. Hypocrisy, properly defined, is sin, so that we don't misunderstand that, various New Testament writers are going to tell us about uh, hypocrisy, that which is truly that, so that we can see it and not want anything to do with it. For example, the Apostle Peter is writing, and he's talking about becoming newborn babes who are growing in the sincere milk of the Word. He says that one of the essentials to that is that you have got to lay aside a, a variety of activities. And one of the things is hypocrisy, 1 Peter 2 in verse 1. James is writing and James is writing about the wisdom which is from above as opposed to the earthly wisdom that we so often come up with and he says God's wisdom is a wisdom that is without hypocrisy James chapter 3 and verse 17 he says hey how about the way you love one another in the church it's to be without hypocrisy Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. The Apostle Paul says you want to know whether or not you're serving faithfully or if you're falling away from the faith. Do you practice hypocrisy? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Jesus says a lot about hypocrisy. The religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, he says they were guilty of it. And he says it in a lot of different ways, but in Matthew 23 and verse 28, he says something that would have shocked them and that would have appalled them. He says hypocrisy is the same thing as lawlessness. They were the defenders of the law. They were guilty of it. In fact, in Luke 12 and verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of the leaven, the yeast influence, the growing influence of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Well, what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is when you state that you have one intention or that you have one purpose, but in reality you have a completely different purpose and intention and motivation altogether. It means pretense. It means to pretend. It means to show one thing, but in your heart and in your life, in some other way, it means that you're playing the actor on the stage. It's a character flaw, and it hurts our spiritual influence. And the Bible tells us that it is possible for us to practice that as children of God or as those who would associate with the people of God. It can happen in a variety of ways. As one adheres to or is part of the church family life, hypocrisy can show itself. Hypocrisy can be that activity of someone who uh, behaves a certain way in order to win the affections of someone. It might be the activity of one who adheres to the congregational setting in order to, uh, for financial reasons, to, to gain clientele or to get a job from a member. Or it could be more generic than that. That we want the admiration and appreciation of others for living the Christian life without having to actually live that. Matt Corby was a teenager in Perth, Australia. He ordered a, a foot-long sub from Subway. And as he looked, I don't know what made him do it. Uh, I guess maybe he just wanted to test it out. He he laid it down. He took his tape measure. And he measured the foot-long sub. And it was 11 inches. And he took put that picture on Facebook. And uh, uh, Subway actually responded to him, maybe because the picture went viral. And here's what they said in response to that. They said the name, Foot Long Sub, is a registered trademark of Subway and it's not intended in any way to be a measurement of length. Now that may hit you about like a, a, a flat soft drink in a stale bag of chips, but do you ever project to be something while being something else? That's the hypocrisy that we need to call what it is. That it's sin. When we begin to examine what the Apostle Paul is saying here, he's talking about this inner struggle of wanting to do what's right, but not doing it and knowing what is wrong, and wanting to avoid that, but not being able to, to crossing the line of commission, as we often say it, or omission, that it was a constant thing going on in his life. And and so as he begins to lay that out for us, you'll, you'll see him saying some things about it. He, he calls it sin in verse 17. He says, it's the evil present within me, verse 21. It's the law of sin in my members, verse 23. Now, I want to say that to set up everything else that I'm going to say in my lesson. If you find yourself living two lives, if you live one way at the church building and another way away from it, if you act one way around the people of God and another way away from the people of God, listen, that's hypocrisy. And that needs to change. That does not need to persist in your life. Because it's hurting other people. It's causing you to be a stumbling block for them. Luke 17, 1 and 2. But more personally to each of us, if that's us, it's going to cost us our souls. So we're not talking about that. The rest of this lesson and what the Apostle Paul is talking about is somebody who is conscientiously striving to live in the way that's right, and yet despite those best efforts are coming face to face with their inadequacies as people who are trying to serve God. Do you struggle with that? Let's look at what the Apostle Paul says. The second thing, if we're going to overcome our struggle with hypocrisy, is that we've got to confess the presence of hypocrisy. You know, the Apostle Paul is going to say that. He is going to talk about how, in verse 15 through 17, he finds himself there. He doesn't do the things that he should. He does the things he knows that he should not do. And it causes him to agonize on the inside. And so he he lays it out there so that it can be contemplated. I'm appreciative of that. Let me tell you something as a preacher. I struggle with those same kind of feelings every time that I am to preach or to teach on marriage or on child rearing. Or if we're talking about uh, uh, speaking on some specific sin or Christian duty. I feel like the Apostle Paul, usually I know what's right. But I struggle with the fact that I don't always do that. And again, if, if that's a, a, the, the result of me living two lives, then that ought to drive me to godly sorrow and to change. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and verse 11. But if we're going to overcome that, we have got to confess that it's something that we deal with in our spiritual lives. But then third, to overcome this issue of this struggle of hypocrisy, we have got to wage war against it. Now, what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's showing us how law and grace work together. Grace is the demonstration of unmerited favor. It's what God has given to us. The law that he's talking about here, the law of Moses, is so valuable because it gave him an awareness of sin. He said, I wouldn't know what sin was except that the law shows me that. And as Paul is giving appreciation for this law that raises the awareness of sin... He appreciates it. And and so as he talks throughout this text, he says, I delight in that law, verse 12. It tells me what's wrong and what's right, verse 22. I delight in that law that's in the inner man, verse 23. And yet as I appreciate the law, it shows me such a contrast. It shows me the perfect will of God and it shows my imperfection and my need of God. But he doesn't stop with that. He gives us, in this context, several tools that can help us in order that we might successfully wage war against hypocrisy. God's given us a toolbox full of tools. I want you to notice what they are as we walk through the text. How do you wage war against hypocrisy? First of all, you surround yourself with good examples. Now, I want you to note with me that the good example that we see right here in the text is the Apostle Paul. Now he's writing this to the Jews and the Gentiles that are worshipping together there in Rome. And he is writing to them as one who had not yet been to them but that was intending to go to them. But a man who was going all over the known world sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was transformed. He had gone from what he used to be in fighting against Jesus to one who was declaring Jesus. He was very soon going to be put in prison for preaching Jesus. It's this Paul who says, I struggle. I struggle. You know, I'm benefited in my Christian life, especially in the areas of my life where I struggle, when I am able to look and see Christians who are striving to do what's right. I realize intellectually that they're struggling on the inside too, but as I think about that and I acknowledge that, there are some who have strengths in areas that I have weaknesses. And I may have strengths in areas where they have weaknesses, and we benefit from examples that we get from one another. You know, the Bible is full of that. Uh, you, you read in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 7 and it says that uh, Macedonia and Achaia, they look to Thessalonica as an example. 1 Thessalonians 1, 7. And how about Macedonia? They could look to Paul and Silas and Timothy as examples that they could look up to. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9. James, he is writing to his audience and he says, I want you to take the prophets as an example to you. James chapter 5 and verse 10. I, I'm... We're coming up on not too long from now, two years, since we were blessed to move to Lehman. And in that period of time, though, I expect it will happen more and more the longer that we're here. I already have examples in this church. And I appreciate what Daryl said. I'm the same way. I'd, I'd name names, but I'd leave folks out and I don't want to do that. But there are people in this church that have helped me to strengthen my prayer life. There are individuals here who their encouragement and their sweetness to others has been a model to me. There are folks who are level-headed and full of common sense. There are folks who are Bible students and you have helped me more than you know. And I want us to step back and say, as we're living the Christian life and we're trying to overcome this daily struggle with hypocrisy, find people who are striving and who are, are succeeding in areas where you struggle. It's one of the resources God has given to us, good examples. But as a part of that, another thing that he gives us as a tool to wage war is our church family. As we read the Apostle Paul's words here, What's really interesting is, we've noted this before, that there are two sections to the book of Romans. And where we're looking at right now is in the first section of Romans. It's the doctrinal section. He is demonstrating to us how faith and grace and works all flow together. And it flows together such that God had to provide the answer for the problem that we have that we couldn't solve for ourselves. He says that we're sinners in Romans 3 and in Romans chapter 5. And in the midst of that, he's talking about how we need grace because the law is showing us how uh, that we're not able to do it without the grace of God. We're going to struggle at our best. But then he goes in chapter 12 through 16 in what we call the practical section and he says here's how all that plays out day by day in your spiritual lives. And what he shows us here is that we need one another. That we cannot isolate ourselves from each other. Sin loves the darkness and it hates the light. And as we are in our minds and as we're fighting the battle of our heart, we find ourselves magnifying the challenge that we face so that we'll write emails and we'll say things like we've just mentioned today. That people who are good Christians are declaring that. We need each other. And as you walk through what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9 for an example, he says that we're to accept one another. Romans 12 and verse 10. Romans 12 and verse 15, we are to rejoice with one another and we're to weep with one another in Romans 12 and verse 16 we're to be of the same mind toward one another in Romans 13 and verse 8 we're not to owe any man anything except to love one another Romans chapter 14 and verse 1 we are to accept the brother who is weak in faith and weak in conscience in Romans 14 and verse 19 we are to look to one another to build up one another Romans 15 and verse 1 you that are strong are to bear the infirmities of those that are weak and not just please yourselves let everyone please his neighbor for his good to his edification and that's just a sample. Read through Romans twelve, through Romans sixteen, and what Paul is saying is, don't isolate yourself, don't fence yourself in in this personal battle, and not make use of the resources that God has given you. You know, you think about the church. What is the church? It is the eternal purpose of God. Before God formed Adam and Eve out of the dust, Adam out of the dust of the ground, and Eve from Adam, before they ever were, were made. Out before time, God had the church in his mind. And God does so much through the church. He's glorified, Ephesians 3.21. But one of the things that he does is he gives us community where we can lean on one another. You want to wage war and fight the battle with hypocrisy that's going on inside of you, It's going on inside of me? Then look at your church family. But then also he tells us that to use your divine lifeline The Apostle Paul is demonstrating to us that because we can't fight the sin battle alone, we've got to deepen our relationship with God. And listen, I'm one that will say it as much as anybody. You can't successfully fight that battle if you're not in the Word. You have got, not just when we're here together, but in your daily life, you've got to be a student of God's Word because it's His mind that you're to fill your heart with that you might not sin against Him. Psalm 119 and verse 11. And we have to be faithful in prayer. We have got to demonstrate our dependency on God so that we're never far from speaking to Him. But it's even more than that. It's about trusting Him, no matter what. To have a Job-like faith that says, Though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. Job 13 and verse 15. You have, and Paul is saying that here, you have a divine lifeline. And he's going to say even more about that in Romans chapter 8. And it's one of the tools that he gives you to wage war against hypocrisy. But then he also gives us a sharp conscience. It's another tool in the toolkit that we have that sharp conscience that he gives us is something that Paul likes to talk about. He he uses that phrase, good conscience, several times in the book of Romans. He, he says it in Romans 2.15, he says it in Romans chapter 9 and verse 1, and in Romans chapter 13 and verse 5. He's emphasizing how vital it is for us to keep our sensitivity of right and wrong very clear. It's what he's doing right here. He's well aware that he's not doing what he should and that he's doing the things he shouldn't do. You know, doctors tell us that one of the phenomena that is unique to human beings is that increased blood flow that occurs in the body, especially in the face, that in the right stimuli causes us to blush. But we understand that that can be lost, don't we? In Jeremiah's day he says that they had been in sin for so long and to such a degree Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 12 that they had lost their ability to blush. And they had found themselves in a circumstance to where they could excuse their sin. You know and raising our boys they they fell into something that I think is pretty common. You and I could confess the same thing, but I remember when they were growing up, who left the front door open? Who ate the last piece of cake? Who left the milk out overnight? The answer was predictable, not me. Whether it was fear of consequences or pride or whatever it was, we are conditioned pretty early in life to deny that we have a a problem, that we are not guilty of sin, and, and it's something that continues with us. But something happens spiritually in our lives when we can convince ourselves that it's okay to do what's wrong and not have to face up to that. What combats that is a clear conscience. You know, the people of Judah and Jeremiah's day even said, we have been delivered to do this abomination. Jeremiah 7 and verse 10. In other words, hey, since I'm a Christian, it's okay for me to do this. And Paul is dealing with the same thing in Romans. He says, shall you continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. Being a Christian is not a license to sin. And as we keep our conscience sharp, we can't be content with just willfully rebelliously doing what's wrong in god's eyes do you see how god he's saying look i know you're going to struggle with this and so i'm going to give you all of these things to help you with that and, and there's there's even another he's given us a defined purpose he's given us an identity He wants us to see that we're not like the world when we're in Christ. And so he's going to talk about the identity. He's going to sing a a beautiful song of blessed assurance in Romans chapter 8 so that we don't live beneath our our privileges, that we don't live beneath our identity, that we understand who we are and, as we have often said, whose we are. It will help us to succeed. Now, as we walk through that in just a few minutes, I, I want you to see... How God says, I know this is your tendency, this is why I had to send my son to die for your sins. I'm going to give you all of this to help you. But there's one other thing I want you to observe, and really it's an extension of this. To overcome our struggle with hypocrisy, we have got to lean on Jesus Christ for strength. That's what he's going to say. You know, even as Paul is at the depths of his struggle, I want you to think about that. Paul is is saying, man, this is beating me up so bad. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But even in 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 the valley, spiritually, he understands. He can't do it alone. And yes, we've talked about the church family. That's an extension of this, but it begins... By leaning on Christ. What does he say immediately? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And then he launches out into what that means in day-by-day life. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me uh, free from the law of sin and death. But For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God in sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that those who live by the requirements of the law are those who understand that we must live by uh, the Spirit of God. For those that are according to the flesh serve the law of the flesh. Those that are according to the Spirit do mind the things of the Spirit. For those that serve the flesh uh, are in enmity against God. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, if we are uh, led by the Spirit of God, then we overcome those things. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. In Romans 8, 1-9, he's going to say a whole lot more after that, there are four things he tells us about leaning on Jesus as we fight this battle of overcoming hypocrisy in our hearts and in our lives. Number one is focus on the rejoicing. Re- focus on the rejoicing, and the jo- rejoicing is there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, that's not a license to sin, but it's a reminder and the devil and the world would like us to think that we're defeated and that we can't overcome, but we are overcomers through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the reason is that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The hamster wheel of hypocrisy is a miserable ride for everybody who's stuck on it. The child of God doesn't have to be stuck on it. Because the law, the spirit, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free From the law of sin and death. The remedy. The remedy is in verse 3. What the law law could not do. The law of Moses. In that it was weak through the flesh. In other words. As people we can't perfectly obey God's law. God in sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Condemned sin in the flesh. Or as Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin. That we might be made. The righteousness of God in him. You know what he's saying? You need to live faithfully. But at your best, striving your hardest, you're still going to fall short. You need Christ. Now, there's the responsibility. There's two ways to live life. According to your flesh or according to the Spirit of God. He's saying we have a responsibility to walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. On your best days, maybe there are days where you you don't really come face to face with some inadequacy and weakness in your life. I think maybe as we grow in Christ day by day, that maybe there are more days like that. But at our best, we're still going to be inadequate. And we still need Jesus. Not an exception in this room, including the man who's preaching to you today. If Paul struggled... All of us are going to struggle. But we don't have to lose the struggle. We're overcomers through Christ. Read about Tyson Smith, 36-year-old man from San Diego, California. Tyson Smith had a weak old heart and it was about ready to give out. But in fact, it was... It was so serious his condition that they couldn't do a traditional heart transplant. There's a procedure I can't give you the name of it, it's a big long technical term. But it's been tried a few times in history. The last one that we know of was tried or that was successful was with Tyson Smith. You know what they did? They put the new heart in alongside of the old weak heart. I I looked everywhere. You can look too, maybe you find it you're better at searching Google than I am, but I can't figure out what happened to him. He did live for a while after that. I know this, he wouldn't have lived without the new heart. As we live the Christian life, it's a process. Now there's an event, there's an event that changes our condition. And that event is when we respond to God's grace in the faith that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. That's at the heart of the purpose of the epistle to the Romans Let me ask you, do you believe what Paul says that we must believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And more than that, do you believe that he's the answer to your sin problem? Do you believe that as you live life trying to walk in his footsteps, that he has the power to save? And as we look at that grace, we understand that it demands a change. That change is broadly called repentance. It's a change that begins right here and that it shows itself in your life. And do you feel so convicted about that that you would confess that Jesus is the Son of God before others? And do you want to get access to the benefits of that grace, the very thing that we're talking about today, so much that you'll do simply not what man says but what God's Word says to do? From the first time Jesus was preached throughout the New Testament people who believed in Jesus as the Son of God who repented of sins, confessed Him and were baptized, were united with Him in His death and were raised to walk in a new way of life. Their sins forgiven. That's the act that changes the condition. But it's a process. You and I are in the middle of that process. There are people here Who've lived seven, eight, nine decades. And if we get past the four year talk with them and have a real conversation, they're going to tell you that they understand exactly what Paul is talking about because the battle's still going. But this is not a defeatist sermon because it wasn't a defeatist paragraph of Scripture. Paul uses action words 19 times, do, doing, and practice. But he also uses personal pronouns 24 times to say, I get it, I understand the part I have to play. The part I have to play is to not be content with sin in my life and to want to do what's right. Let me tell you, if that's where you are, if you are not content serving sin, and if you really, really, really are trying to live in a way that's right as a Christian, then you're overcoming. If our Lord comes back today, or you were to die today, and that's you, you should have the confidence that when you wake up on the other side of time that you're going to be on our Lord's right hand. That's the people of 1 John 5 and verse 13, the people who are walking in the light. I preach that sermon to encourage you if that's where you are. Don't beat yourself up and let the devil use that to keep you from being faithful to him. But I also preach it if I'm talking to somebody who is not really fighting the battle. You're somebody else when you're not here. But the beautiful thing about God is everywhere you turn in Scripture, He's saying, come back to me because I want you. No matter where you've been, just come to me and I'll forgive you. He waits for you, if that's you, this morning. And you know you need to make a change. You need to be restored to Him. He longs and He waits for you like the prodigal son's father did in Luke 15. If it's your invitation, won't you come right now as we stand and sing?